We often call this the moon landing of biology for one hundredth of the price. At the end of the day, the moon landing was just about bringing super smart people together under a united mission, and, and, and we feel the same way, but, but also at the same time, just good people. That's Tim, one of the two co-founders of Vow, and this is Wild Hearts. Greetings, everyone, and welcome to Wild Hearts, a podcast dedicated to sharing the real stories of founders, the passionate few taking giant leaps forward. We're here to uncover the lessons from the founders looking to change the world and the investors who back them. This podcast is brought to you by the team of Blackbird, and I'm your host, Mason Yates. Blackbird is based across ANZ, and we were founded in 2012 with a single mission, to supercharge the most ambitious founders. Welcome to episode three of Wild Hearts. We have two founders on the show today, George, a former chef and scientist, his partner in crime, Tim, who before starting Vow was mastering the art of changing human behavior in human-centered design at Cochlear. Together, Tim and George are resurrecting past culinary delights long forgotten by history by synthetic biology. And in essence, they're reinventing food from the ground up. If I was to summarize these two founders with one bizarre analogy, they're like large flying cockroaches. Let me explain. Most lab-grown meats companies spend one to two million to get to where Vow spent 60K in savings. What did they do to hit their milestones so cheaply? In addition, in the episode, they talk about the future of automation in biotech, how they're using software principles at Vow, and why humanity's future depends on companies like Vow. They are, in my eyes, flying cockroaches because they have a vision of the future and they know how to be scrappy to get there. Later in the episode, we'll hear from Blackbird's general partner, Samantha Wong, to find out how she met the Vow founders, what the future of alternative protein looks like, and whether or not farming will be disrupted in this new world of meat. Without further ado, here's Tim and George. When we were prepping for this, um, we were having a small debate, cultured meat, uh, clean meat, cultivated meat. Um, what are the first principles of cultured meat? And which one is right? Gosh, it's a, uh, <laughs> it's a question which always happens. It's like, what do we call this thing? And it's, for us, we choose to call it cultured meat. It's a really accurate description of it. It is meat. It is biologically the same thing as the animal meat that we consume. And it's grown using tissue culture. There's a lot of criticism around naming like clean meat. It, it implies that what we choose to eat today is not clean. And that tends to offend agricultural producers, which isn't our intention. But all of this aside is what we're talking about here is, is an alternative way of producing real meat. So the meat that we eat is made up of skeletal muscle cells, fat cells and connective tissue cells mostly. What we do is we take a small biopsy from a living animal and we isolate the cells that are responsible for repairing skeletal muscle, fat and connective tissue. We place those cells in an environment that convinces them they're still inside of the animal. So they grow and they grow and they grow and they grow until we have lots and lots of them. And then we change that environment and convince them that it's time to turn into that skeletal muscle, fat and connective tissue. So we're able to re uh, recreate exactly animal meat, but without involving animals in the production process. Why do you think cultured meat is important for humanity? Yeah, a huge question, right? Loaded question. Yeah, no, I'm I mean, definitely a loaded question, but a really, really important one, right? So I think, like, coming back to thinking a couple of years ago about, like, where is it that we can make the biggest impact and looking at the biggest issues that are facing humanity, there was this kind of common thread in the middle there. And it was that food and our food systems in terms of moving to nine or 10 billion people is just not built for purpose at all. It's not structured for our success in terms of creating abundance without basically destroying this earth that we're on. 
And then at the same time, we are realizing now that there is an opportunity for what is essentially like a next agricultural revolution. That there is a huge opportunity to rebuild things from the ground up and not just do it in a way that's sustainable, which is incredibly important and critical for our survival as a human species. But we're able to basically reimagine what's possible and have exciting new flavors and exciting new functions and totally different foods to what we've been producing just using kind of traditional agriculture. The other part of that as well is that there's a good reason people choose to eat animal products is they are without a shadow of a doubt the best possible products that you can be eating in a category right now. They're, no matter how good plant-based are, meat is still the gold standard that we hold ourselves to. So to have a competitor which can be able to uh, have better flavors, food experiences than animal products means that we can compel people to choose something that has a lower impact than animal agriculture. Mm. No matter how sustainable animal agriculture gets, it doesn't scale. You need huge amounts of land and huge amounts of resources to produce animals sustainably. And the only way to intensify it is by cramming more animals in a small space. And we've seen the problems of that. We've seen the ethical problems, the environmental problems, and most recently, the opportunity for viruses to jump from animal to animal to human, mm. and the huge consequences of global pandemics that come from animals. All of these problems get worse as we intensify animal agriculture and humans want to eat more animals. So we need to find a way to make far better products than animals without involving whole animals in that production process. And that's a really important point, right? That like meat currently is like, it's a really, really good product. Like people have eaten this thing for thousands of years. We built our cultures around it. It's something that is phenomenally good. And that's why it's so hard for people to kind of move away from it. Like we make our decisions aspirationally beforehand about how we want to eat, but ultimately we are driven by our desires. And so creating a product that is simply better than what exists today, it's really making the better choice the obvious one rather than feeling people feeling like they have to choose. Mm. So would this statement be true or false? In 10 years time, everyone on the planet will be um, eating cultured meat. I think 10 years from now, everyone will have the opportunity and the choice to. But it won't be the only choice. A few decades, 30, 40 years, I believe it will be by far the dominant choice in every category and every market. 10 years from now, if you walk into the supermarket, I believe, I believe you'll have the option no matter which country you're in. If you walk into any restaurant in any major city in the world, you're going to have an option of eating cultured meat. People are still going to be choosing to eat animal products, plant-based products and cultured meat at that point. But over time, that is going to become the dominant category because you have all of the advantages of animal products without any of the disadvantages of animal production. What are you uh, both working on at VOW? Um, what are you looking to create? Um, yeah, great question. So VOW is, we are a cultured meat company. Um, we see ourselves as a food company, but right now kind of disguised as a biotech company. So essentially what we're trying to do is, like everyone else in this space, is create breakthroughs in terms of using cells to make meat. Where VOW is a little bit different is we're not focused on replacing what exists today. We, we have no interest in creating the new chicken or beef or duck. What we're interested in is this idea that food isn't defined by the domestication criteria or the production criteria that we've had in animal agriculture basically forever. So we believe that nature has all these untold secrets in terms of the flavors and functions in cells of animals all around the world, ones that we haven't even thought to eat, that can be brought together to create basically entirely new food experiences. And the way that we're looking at that, well, maybe you want to touch on our, our cell library. And so, what's a cell library? That's a, that's a uh, big and important question. So 
If we have this technology, which means that we can create any meat that we want from cells, we see no need to restrict ourselves to the animals we've traditionally eaten. So rather than just sticking with beef, chicken, pork, and lamb, we are systematically exploring the biodiversity that exists on this planet, going out and sourcing cells from species that we could either never produce industrially or that would never be, never make sense to be growing in some sort of farmed environment. We then store those in a library of cells where we can then draw on those anytime to create an unlimited range of different products. This choice is what we see driving consumer decision-making in the future and our ability to enable choice and our ability to craft any texture, flavor, or food experience is going to enable a blossoming of hundreds of new brands, hundreds of new categories of products that are nothing like the meat we eat today, that are better, they're more nutritious, they're tastier, and they have better overall experience. So you're creating a new category of food? Exactly. We've set out to create a new category of food. And what are you leaning on first? Is there a set of cells that, you're, that you found at the moment that work really well? Um, what's exciting you? Yeah, so, I mean, there's, there's some we can say, there's some that we can't say. Um, we, we had an aim in our first year to have at least five different animals in this cell library and understand them and be growing them up. Um, we have exceeded that. Um, we have one animal in there that's, that's quite novel. Um, the ones that are public are kangaroo and pork. And we have one that is probably more novel than kangaroo, um, which we're super excited about. For me to be having kangaroo on a Sunday night, yeah. um, what is at a sort of super high level? What are some of the steps that need to to go right for that to happen? So there's a there's a few things in there. There's number one is the technology, number two is the regulation, and number three is the consumer acceptance. So the technology we need to have cells taken from an animal, stored in our cell library, and able to be grown up indefinitely. We need to understand the conditions that those cells need and be able to cost effectively create those conditions. And then we need a manufacturing process that allows that to happen in thousands and thousands and thousands of liters of fluid consistently and reliably. That's where a lot of our focus has been over the last year. We also need a regulatory system which allows us to sell these products to you as a consumer. And we need you to want to eat them. And so we're working across all three of those areas because all three are critical if we're gonna create this new category of food. Starting with step one, how do you scale process like that? Really, it's it looks a little bit like a brewery. You have these big stainless steel tanks, mm. and within those you have the cells, the growth media, and whatever other things we're adding to our process. We stir those tanks and keep them in exactly the right conditions of temperature and pH, and that replicates the environment of being inside the animal. So those cells think they're inside an animal and grow and grow and grow as they would you know, normally. Mm. Uh, when we have enough, we then drain them out of the tank and are able to harvest them and do our downstream processing to turn those into finished food products. Fascinating. And so how are you experimenting on that super rapidly? I know that's um, super important to you guys at Val. So a lot of biology is really a process of educated trial and error. You form a hypothesis about what's going to happen and then you test that. And so you can do two things to do uh, to work faster. One is form better hypotheses, and two is do more experiments. And so it seemed really obvious to Tim and I, as people outside of science, that let's just pull both of those levers super hard. Let's use robotics and build around robotics and high throughput experimentation right from the beginning. And let's build around systematic data collection so that we can explore all of these options quantitatively and use the power of data science to make better or form better hypotheses that we can then experiment on rapidly. For us, we have in our in our the media that we grow these cells in we have up to 80 ingredients and we need to find the optimal concentration of every single one for each of the cells in our library and so there was no way to do that manually we had to build around this idea of automation from the very beginning 
in order for this to even be a plausibility. And so everything we do is on this foundation of high throughput and collect lots of data in order to make better decisions around what to do next. To gain sort of a clearer picture of what you mean, would you mind running us through maybe a, a failed experiment? Um, what's the process? I think, I think the best approach to this is, is to instead talk about sub-optimizing experiments. Because in science, and this is, mm. this is how we experiment rapidly, is like, because in science, a lot of the time, especially in academia at the moment, you are, and running the scientific method, basically what you're attempting to do is substantiate your results with absolute certainty. Mm. Because that's what you need to do to publish a paper or to have other people convinced that that's the right way. Whereas we are running a biotech tr company trying to get to really good products for humans. And so the focus isn't necessarily on publishing a paper, but what we want to do is create experiments that give us signals as to whether they're working or not. And so what we focus on is doing a higher number of not necessarily fully optimized experiments to get signals as to which ones work better so that we can dive deeper on those ones faster. And so we're closing those iteration cycles faster so it's more like agile in science. I love that. And so for you then, what does the future of automation look like in bio? Yeah, it's an awesome question and something we think about a lot. So right now, if you kind of went behind the scenes in science, even like bleeding edge science, it can be a little bit disappointing. And what I mean by that is when you go into a wet lab, like in doing cell culture, most of the work is actually manual labor. So what's happening is people are picking liquid up and putting it down. They're spinning things around at different speeds. They're heating them up and they're cooling them down and they're kind of rinsing and repeating in steps in a recipe to get to a certain intended outcome. The thing is though, is that a lot of that is not necessarily leveraged work when it comes to the creative and intellectual power of people. So we see the future of work being that really leveraging scientists in terms of their creative ability. Kind of what we're seeing right now is scientists work really hard to think about these incredible new potential concepts and then spend the other 95% of their time in there just roughing it out and actually having to do that manual labor and that manual work. Whereas we believe that there is massive opportunity for automation in that. So that basically what you end up as a scientist is someone who is creating protocols. And then those protocols get run while you're thinking about the next protocol. You come back, you look at the data, you see how that is, and you see how that mixes with the other data that we have. And that gives you the inputs to then use your creative mind to think about what's coming up next. And so we see automation where a lot of these steps that are manual labor, we can pull the best from other industries in terms of high-tech manufacturing, in terms of what's happening in silicon computing in terms of what's happened in software and tech and actually start to apply those to biology in a way that we haven't necessarily thought to before so that we could take the scientists from more of a technician performing manual labor to being more creative and spending more leverage time thinking about the best way to approach things in a way that they couldn't if they were picking liquid up and putting it down. The other, the other part of this which is happening in parallel to all of the work that we're doing internally about changing how we think about science and what the role of a scientist is, is a huge open source movement in, in the tools of science. The software of you know, an analyzing genetic code has always been open source and freely and publicly available, but the physical tools haven't. So if I want to go and buy a bioreactor, which is the, the type of machine that we grow ourselves in, I go to Sartorius or Beckman Coulter or one of these big vendors of scientific equipment and I pay them $200,000 for a very large, very expensive, very proprietary piece of equipment and wow. another $30,000 for the software to run, you know, the 20 year old software to run on the, the computer they give me. And then five years down the line when they stop supporting that, there's nothing I can do. Whereas now we're starting to see open source tools creep in in everything from robotics to bioreactors to 
uh, you know, peripheral tool sets around this. And that, for me, is the really exciting movement. It's sort of where software was 10, 15 years ago. As those open source tools started to come in, you then didn't, as a software company, you didn't have to start from scratch on everything. So you have this huge tool set that you can draw from and assemble to create something unique that is yours and, and proprietary without having to build every part of that tool set from scratch. Yeah, I mean, when, when, when George and I started Val and started getting stuck into things and we're looking at the solutions that exist, it was, it was like a rude shock. You know, because we come in there, we, we're not we're not necessarily like we don't have the background of being established in, in academia and science, and then moving into a traditional biotech company or traditional research. So when we go, oh, we we need to do this thing, like what's going to be fit for purpose, and we go out to distributors for for certain hardware or software or processes, and they say, you know, it's going to be this much, and we go, what? Like, sorry, how much? Like you're just you're just doing something that I've seen done incredibly well in software or in tech but you've labeled it for life sciences and people just aren't questioning it. People aren't asking. And then when they buy it, you're the only one that knows how to do anything with it. So you can't have your own internal software engineers or anyone working on the tools to actually make it fit for purpose. And we saw that time and time again, you know, we toured labs in, you know, parts of the Bay Area where this is like biotech hubs and people have like half a million dollar liquid handling robots or other machines that are sitting there that at the time they thought was fit for purpose and they're just like oh yeah man that's that's not doing anything we realized that was the wrong machine and they couldn't do anything about it because they didn't have the know-how or the software wasn't open for them to to adjust it and so we thought this is like for lack of a better way of putting it like this is bullshit this is total bullshit and we've seen how open source tools and being able to do things and work creatively in-house and own that whole process has allowed other industries to be totally leveraged with their time and so we thought why can't we do that in in science and why can't we do that in biotech so many of the startups we see in um, cultured meat spend one to two million dollars getting to steps that you've already been through um, long ago what are some of the examples where you have been able to move uh, in a really lean fashion? This is a, you know, this this early period was absolute chaos. I, I can't <laughs> even begin to describe how oh, how much we underestimated and how much our stubbornness pushed us through. Yeah, we. We, we started off, we set ourselves this goal, but like by June, we want to taste some cultured meat. And this was April, beginning of April last year. So we gave ourselves a three month window to do this. We had nothing at the start. And so in about two and a half weeks, we found a lab that would let us set up in there. We went and purchased equipment from these dodgy equipment traders. And this was all in our mornings and evenings and weekends because Tim and I were both still ostensibly working full time at this point. And you make this sound easy. Like, no, you could just, <laughs> like we could just go out and find a lab. The amount of phone calls oh, we had to yeah. make and people going, you want to do what now? Uh, it was, yeah. I remember one I called and they're like, yep, we have the perfect lab for you. I was like, brilliant. Can we move in tomorrow? And they're like, no, it'll take six months. Oh, that's the oh other thing, gosh. right? The bureaucracy was just nuts. We're like, we just want to get to work. And so we, it was uh, madness. you know, our first lab was a glorified shoe cupboard. You know, we're talking about no air conditioning. It's 35 degrees in there with, with four of us working. We're doing uh, shifts at like one in the morning and one of us is under the hood with gloves while the other one dabs his forehead with a cloth to make sure that none of the sweat gets in while we're working. It's a, it is a wonder that we that we nailed it the way that we did in terms of the first proof of concept. To be honest, the only reason that worked was our complete ignorance, is if we knew even a little bit about what we're getting ourselves into, is we both would have looked at each other and said, that is impossible, we can't do that. But it was our ignorance and our commitment and our, our stubbornness that we were just going to do this thing because we had told all of our family and friends we're going to do this thing by the end of June. We were getting friends and you know scientists' friends to come in and help us out uh, just to do the manual labor. 
we were going out and acquiring biopsies by calling up farms and doing crazy stuff and mm. almost getting you know almost getting in trouble with the law in the process like we were just we were just going as fast as we possibly could because we had committed ourselves to doing it and, and just finding every possible lever to pull to make it happen. Often when you want to you, you want to digest something or heat it up to a certain temperature, whether it's room temperature or hotter, you put it in something called a water bath. Water baths are thousands of dollars from a life sciences company. But when you look at it from a first principles perspective, a water bath is very, very simple, Mason. It's, it's a vessel, like a bucket, that heats water up <laughs> that's what a water bath is right it's exactly what you would think it would be and and but you pay thousands of dollars to have one of those that basically has a, a carriage inside of it that moves to agitate whatever sits inside of it this is very very simple hardware we thought well, well this is bullshit and george went well you know who's already nailed these innovations yeah a sous vide in a kitchen right is exactly the same thing you put it in a vessel that has water and it heats it up and so we thought well why not? So, so George brought a sous vide from home. It sat on a plastic container that he cut a hole out of, very rough. Um, and I can tell you, like we, we do have a proper agitating water bath now. And I can tell you that we got that one for free. Um, but we still use that other dodgy one that we created in the lab. It is It works perfectly. And how much did it cost, I think, in the end? $20. 20 bucks. Yeah. Well, hilariously, like the conditions you were describing before being in a shoe box, wiping off sweat, um, survey almost sounds like a, a real life kitchen and you're <laughs> on your way of like automating it to the next yeah. step. Yeah. Um, what are some of the other ways that you managed to do this so cheaply? Yeah, one of the things which still surprises me and I'm incredibly grateful for is the amount of free scientific equipment available <laughs> is universities have these funny budget cycles where if you're an individual scientist, you have to spend out your grant money, which means a lot of equipment gets purchased and replaced on fairly regular cycles. And there is no secondary market. So in the process of searching for labs and talking to people before we put down the phone, it was always, you don't happen to have a centrifuge kicking around, do you? And occasionally it'd be like, yeah, actually we do. And so we we're able to accumulate the most ridiculous amount of free, often basically brand new lab equipment from people who were grateful <laughs> to us for taking it. I called this guy about uh, buying an incubator, which is the, the, the basically the vessel that we put our cells in to keep them at the right temperature and the right uh, conditions for them to grow. And I called this guy and I was like, can I get a quote? And you know, it needs to be pretty cheap. And he's like, look, mate, I can't help you out on that. But if you call my mate, Bill, he's got 10 that you can probably have for free. And I called this guy and I was like, I hear you have free incubators. He's like, yeah, yeah, just come pick them up. And stuff like that just kept kept happening to us time and time again. It We've become incredible. really well known for moving things out of the way yep. for people. You know, they go, oh, this thing's in the way. Oh, that Tim and George guy, they like to move things out of the way. And moving things out of the way has allowed us to kid out a whole lab. In our first three, well, to get to our proof of concept, um, George and I self-funded that whole thing, um, which is pretty unheard of in biotech unless you've been remarkably successful in something else or another biotech company before that. Um, but for about... 60,000 Australian dollars, we got to our first proof of concept. I mean, that's generally how much you would spend on one or two pieces of equipment in the lab, yep. right? And, and we wanted to prove that, that not only could you do it and it could be done, but also that two people with relatively basic, if none at all, science background could pick something up like that, leverage the incredible intelligence of people around them and just apply pure hustle and get it mm. started. Tim, you started a meetup called Clean Meetup, nice play on words, to sort of begin a conversation around clean meat, cultured meat, and, uh, and George was on the panel as a skeptic to cultured meat and the science behind it. Why were you a skeptic, George? 
So I, I did a little bit of cell culture when I was at university and I just remember it being the most frustrating thing, the, the single most frustrating bit of science that I did is that growing cells in culture is really, really hard work. Getting them to grow quickly, getting them to grow reliably, avoiding contamination is all really, really difficult. I looked very briefly at the economics fairly early on and it was like, how can you, how could you possibly make this cost effective? How could you possibly scale this? And it was after that panel and after that conversation I got think I was thinking really really deeply about alternative protein at the time and plant based versus uh, cell based and it was after that conversation I really recognised there was a huge opportunity right now in Australia to build something like this if the economics can work and I went away and spent a huge amount of time doing a really deep dive into the economics of both the manufacturing process and the inputs and the scalability. And what I came away with is there's nothing fundamentally scarce about this. There's no input which is difficult to produce at scale. It's just none of them are produced at scale right now. So the manufacturing parts, the manufacturing infrastructure is incredibly expensive. All the inputs are incredibly expensive because no one is using them out of biopharmaceuticals. In the same way that Impossible has been able to bring the cost of their heme down from the price of recombinant proteins used in medicine of millions of dollars a gram down to cheap enough to literally put it in mincemeat. Mm. The cost of the inputs for cultured meat are going to drop precipitously. And as they do, and as the cost of manufacturing infrastructure drops as well, because it's just not really produced much now, the end product is going to get cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. And so if all of that is true, there's a huge opportunity in cultured meat. It is, in my mind, the best solution to the protein problem that we have. It is a really, really compelling product if you can produce it at scale and cost effectively. And so then the question became, what can we contribute to it? What do we bring to this? And it was that imagination. It was that idea that we don't have to think about this in the terms that our ancestors did. Mm. And we can start to build for a future where we don't associate animals and meat anymore. Mm. And we can build that company now. And we can build that company in Australia because it's the best place in the world to be doing something like that in particular. And you can appreciate why George would be a skeptic, right? Like I've called him out of the blue. We've never met. We had a 90 minute conversation. I've said... I've got a background in human-centered design, and I'd like you to come and join me and start a biotech company. And I knew very, very little about the science that goes behind that. And my only real compelling reason in there was that this is important enough that the innovations that they've been trying to make in other industries using the same science hasn't moved as fast as this is going to move because the reason that we're doing it is compelling enough. And so I can understand why anyone that hears that goes, Right, okay. <laughs> yeah, it's not going to work. But we believe it will work. How has human-centered design helped you? And maybe for the listeners, um, can you just describe what that actually is? Sure, yeah. Human-centered design is using a set of tools to understand what are the insights that sit in the way that people think or approach different problems or different experiences in life. So you can apply human-centered design to fixing processes. You can apply human-centered design to creating beautiful products. Um, you can apply human-centered design to creating social change. Human-centered, well, when we think about food, like food is probably, other than maybe breathing, is the single most widespread habit. And it's incredibly nuanced. Uh, you know, one of the things we do when we travel is we try food. It's different all over the place. And people have built a lot of their culture and sense of identity around food. And so when we think about food in the future, we think about the fact that we're not just going out there to create beef or chicken. We're creating products that are more human, that allow people to express more human because we've exploded what's possible in food by having more choice. When you see a trend or you see humans operating in a certain way that creates a pattern, 
It's about asking why and then applying the tools in human-centered design, which is, you know, interviewing. It is about getting deep in there. It's about using data and then going, okay, what is the insights that sit below the trend here that allows us to tell a compelling story to these people and create a product that actually resonates with them and creates a message that for them is more impactful than the resistance that they have to change. When we think about Val, we think about creating a house of brands that is driven by a product market fit engine with human-centered design principles underlying that. Mm. Can you unpack that a bit more and, and what does product mar- market fit mean to you guys and, and uh, how does that relate to human-centered design? George and I, you know, like we ran at this thing thinking that we can and we have the conviction to think that we can. But one thing that we don't have the conviction is that we can just tell consumers what they want. At the end of the day, when we think about the future of VAL, we think about a house of brands because we believe that the way to get widespread change using this product is to apply to many different markets and you'll need many different brands to support those different markets. In order to do that though, you need to first figure out what is a product that's going to be most compelling. Then using cellular agriculture, spin up a prototype and test it in market. The beautiful thing about cellular agriculture is that the infrastructure, the core infrastructure can be the same across many different cell lines or many different products. And so it gives us this unique and rich ability to be able to do small scale production and test it in market and use human centered design principles to understand, does this resonate? Is this messaging right? Is this product desirable? Is the brand that supports this actually doing its service? And is it going to be successful? And by doing those small scale pilot launches of products, we're able to go, oh, this one's working and this one isn't and scale up those that work and scale down those that don't. And it's because we have that infrastructure in cellular agriculture that is adaptable, as in we can drain these tanks and seed them with new cells and produce new products using the same infrastructure. That's what allows us to have this product market fit engine because we can constantly test things and close that iteration cycle. And that engine only makes sense because we're not just looking at domesticated species. If we were just looking at domesticated species, it becomes a question of how do we produce as much of this as possible, as cheaply as possible, and make it as close as possible to what people are familiar with. Because we're choosing to go into a new category of food, there is this huge core problem on top of the technology of how do we change human behavior. And that's really what Tim's expertise is. He's spent years working on how do you change human behavior with new types of products. You've touched on um, a number of software principles around um, learning from customers, rapidly um, evolving your your offering. Um, can you talk a bit about how you're taking some of those um, software principles and then applying that to bio? Yeah. So, I mean, one thing that we learned the hard way was managing exploratory R&D is hard. And it's hard to... It introduces all of these challenges that, that we didn't anticipate. And we thought, well, where out in the world have they, have they solved for this? And we realized that software is, is really nailing it when it comes to creating and shipping products really fast and doing it in the right way. And, and so having a background in working in, in software and working in Scrum and Agile, we thought, well, why can't we, why can't we do this in science? Why can't we use Agile and Scrum methodology and science, close that iteration cycle, work with sprints and have really clear and meaningful goals where people are, you know, there's this problem in science, right? And it's where there's these different groups that are siloed in their expertise mm. and the transfer of information between them is often full of friction and communication problems and breakdowns. And it basically uses old school traditional project management to try and get over that. And it's slow. 
we thought, well, why do we have to do that? Why can't we align our team under the same specific goal and then use their kind of multifunctional expertise to attack the same central backlog? And so we, but we realized that Agile itself wasn't exactly fit for purpose. So we created our own version and we called it Nimble, um, which is a bit tongue in cheek. Um, and, you know, we're exceptionally lucky that we did that because what happened is, you know, just before COVID hit, we had introduced this and we had, you know, really, it's always like switching a team to Agile as hard as like six weeks of just deathly pain. Um, but it allowed us to get through using and utilizing remote work and having less people able to be in the lab at the same time to, to great effect. And now the team is able to really self-manage in a way that they were never able to before because everyone is clear on what the goals are. Everyone is set on what they need to be doing to contribute to that end goal. And they're attacking this central backlog together where we can trace and understand where the, the, the bottlenecks are. It sounds like you've put a lot of thought into team, team building. Yes. I know that you've just hired a few people, looking to hire a few, a few more. Can you run through um, how you guys think about team and, and how you're uh, building that out? So team for us is without shadow of doubt the single most important thing. We, from the very beginning, had a firm belief and still do absolutely have this firm belief that this is a very multidisciplinary problem. This isn't a science problem. This isn't a regulatory problem. This isn't a food or brand problem. This is all of those things at once. And we need to be able to get a team full of experts that are able to work outside of their expertise. So early on, we had, we're working with a couple of fantastic scientists, but we needed someone who just understood the biology of muscle, which makes up the bulk of meat better than anyone else on the planet. And I remember Tim and I went to Melbourne and we reached out to this guy on Twitter called James Ryle, who had been on ABC and was talking about, at the time, clean meat and the impact to the Australian ag sector. And he, he did this great interview. He sounded like he really knew what he was talking about when it came to the opportunity in, in cultured meat. And so Tim reached out to him on Twitter. We went down to Melbourne and we had this coffee with him. And we just sat there and he just, in about 90 minutes, <laughs> blew our minds. The <laughs> number of, it was like the stuff that he told us then. Insert me. Yeah, exactly. The stuff he oh, told man. us then was the stuff that we're doing now. It was really, it was totally, totally mind-blowing. The amount of thinking he'd put into this, the amount of issues that he surfaced for us. He had this remarkable ability to make your old self feel stupid <laughs> and, and your future self feel smarter. Yeah. <laughs> it was wild. And we're just like, we have to hire this guy. And so we started, you know, we occasionally reached out to him and called him and, you know, we just started like broaching this topic and he was absolutely insistent. He was just like, there's no way I'm leaving my secure, rewarding, interesting academic career to join this, <laughs> you, you know, this crazy startup. And we just sort of wore him down over months and just understood what mattered. And, you know, he describes it to us now as we just gave him no way to say no. Every, every reason, you know, we went through months of negotiation where he'd give us another reason it wouldn't work. And then another reason and we just kept working through them and eventually just ran out of reasons to say he'd no. He'd give us shopping lists. And I, I know that these were Hail Mary shopping lists, right? They're like, was, they'll never do this. He was like, you need to go and find some <laughs> facility which can, do, yeah, he was like, you got to find this facility which can do this obscure genetic technique and one which has this specialized bit of equipment and you have to get access to this and 24 hours later, we'd be like, done. Okay, and, what's next? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and he was just like, damn it. Yeah. <laughs> to get people out of their secure careers, we have to offer so much more in such a compelling environment. And so those first few hires were really, really hard. We had mm. to work really hard. And then our focus has shifted to creating the absolute best culture that we can imagine, to creating this environment where people feel empowered and trusted and there's absolute internal transparency uh, and every individual we focus on building up individuals to be their best selves and so that initial investment 
in creating this culture is now really paying off because we're able to attract better and better people every single round that we go out to hire and it's creating the team that we dreamed of and it's allowing the people on our team to grow and be so much better than they even imagined they could be. I think the thing that really got James over the line is we flew him out to Sydney and he you know, he tells us that he had absolutely zero intention of joining us and he didn't even really know why he got on that flight but I guess he was probably more curious than anything else and we just kind of, he gave us a presentation and we chatted a bit and then George and I went, all right, we're going to leave the room and just let you talk to, talk to everyone. And I think that that was the thing that got James over the line. I mean, we were in the other room, nervous as hell. Oh, there was a lot of pacing like, happening. Yeah, we're that. like, was that a mistake? Like, because we hadn't told the team that we were going to do no. that. I'm like, should we have told them first? Like, should we have said that? It's like, nah, you know what, man, if, if this doesn't do it, then, then, then we haven't built the right thing. You know, we, we often call this the moon landing of biology for one hundredth of the price. At the end of the day, the moon landing was just about bringing super smart people together under a united mission. And, and, and we feel the same way, but, but also at the same time, just good people. I, lo- I love that you can um, attract the best people by hitting milestones and unlocking belief that way, yeah. where the, there's a super ambitious mission and then um, each step of the way you unlock belief in someone and, and that accumulates over time. It was a, it's funny you mentioned that. I remember when we had James up for that day as we sort of showed him around the lab and James is a hard man to read and he didn't look super impressed. And then we went out to lunch where we could, you know, the nearest place that we could find because he had a flight to get and we found this really crappy, oh, so the bad. worst kebab shop in Paramount. <laughs> so bad. I read this terrible kebab shop and we sit down and James is stone-faced <laughs> and he sits down opposite us and he just goes, what you guys have done is nothing short of phenomenal. <laughs> and we're like, what? <laughs> it was it was hilarious but it was just uh, we we had no concept at that point of whether what we had done was you know we, we were just like dipping a toe in and everyone does that or whether we had actually achieved something and that was that was the first moment where someone who was a real expert in the science looked at what we had done and said this is really impressive i know that in the first six weeks he felt like it paid off because he's like i've never worked so hard in my life mm. it's terrifying i'm <laughs> tired but this is riveting and it is it's riveting mm. because we can bring smart people together and they can work super hard and no one necessarily feels like it's not what they want to do which mm. is really 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 powerful it, it's amazing how well everyone knows each other and it's amazing how compelling transparency and honesty is for everyone everyone mm. knows everything there's nothing to hide and it i can tell you right now like as a founder like there's a lot less anxiety when you feel like you've got nothing to hide right you're not mm. kind of constantly looking around corners that someone might expose <laughs> what you're doing or that someone in the team might hear something differently mm. from someone else on the team talked about something super interesting there which was just reducing the stress of both of you as well as you go on this journey. Are you worried about transferring that stress to your employees, uh, your investors, customers, um, or is it the opposite where everyone feels more empowered? If we were to have different goals to the team, it means that we're looking for a different outcome, mm. right? And, and so hiding things in that sense is, it doesn't make sense, mm. right? At the end of the day, every single person who joins Vow as a full-time person has equity in the company, they're, mm. they're a part owner. And so it means that our outcomes that we're looking for yeah. in terms of the global impact that we have, but also as a company and growing the company is the mm. same for them. It sounds like transparency is a, is a really important value to you guys and you've been um, yeah. far more transparent than many other uh, cultured meat startups out there. Um, can you kind of describe how that's helped you um, on your journey? Transparency is something I feel absolutely deeply passionate about. It's one of the most important things that we can do to build the type of company we envision. The number one reason is we we don't see this as a tech play. It is ultimately the first to market is going to be a tech play, but ultimately Vow is going to win in the market 
once there are multiple people with cultured meat products. That is the market that we can best capitalize on. So by being open, by being transparent, and by taking both our team and the public and our stakeholders on this journey with us to realize this new category of food, that's how we realize the opportunity we're running towards. There's this perception in biotech that it's about a single secret invention that unlocks a new market and cultured meat isn't that. There are so many pathways to producing cultured meat and we see that with all of these companies around the world approaching it slightly differently. Rather than following that status quo of trying to find our secret invention and bringing our commodity product to market the same way everyone else is, we need to be a very different type of company. We need to look and we need to act different to realize this opportunity of creating this new category of food and transparency is core to that. We wanna to be totally open with exactly what we're giving you because food is not like any other category, is you're putting it into your body. There's a huge amount of trust that needs to be built and we believe that trust can be built through openness and transparency. I love that. There was one story about a Galapagos tortoise that I would love for one of you to touch on. The Galapagos tortoise is uh, something that, that's kind of inspired our strategy and how we think about the future. So Charles Darwin um, had a group of buddies back in London and anytime that he would kind of discover a new creature, he'd bring it back with him to London and they'd all have a go at eating this thing. It's pretty barbaric, right? Um, and it was called the Exotics Club and it was basically, they would kind of note how things tasted. And Charles Darwin noted that the Galapagos tortoise was like by far, like the fat and the flavor of Galapagos tortoise was by far the most delicious meat he'd ever consumed. So, so the Galapagos tortoise didn't get a name for 200 years because every time, or any new creature to get a name, you needed to bring a live specimen back to London to the Academy of Sciences and the, I guess the, the scientists there would then decide what Latin name to give it. The Galapagos tortoise took 200 years to get a name because every time a research voyage would go out to the Galapagos Islands, they would load it up with Galapagos tortoises and get halfway across the ocean and go, oh, I'm getting pretty hungry. Do you think they'd be annoyed if this one didn't bring it back? And that happened for two centuries. This is a creature that was so delicious. Repeated <laughs> voyages, dozens and dozens of voyages failed to not eat them on the way, which is, it tells you something about the taste of this thing, which you, no other story could really indicate. But what if you could understand what it is at a genetic level and at a cellular level that made this thing so bloody delicious mm. and then produce it in a way that's just as easy as beef or chicken and put it in the hands of people? Right, like that's pure decadence when it comes to flavor. That's pure decadence when it comes to experience. And you know, I want a future where people see the unveiling of a new food in the same way that they think about an iPhone. The possibilities are absolutely endless and we are now on the new frontier of food in that way and the new control and understanding of the attributes of food. And that is super exciting. And Galapagos tortoise burgers is just a first stop. It's just a first stop. <laughs> At the time of recording, it's, it's lunchtime and, and I'm getting pretty hungry. <laughs> <laughs> Um, can you guys touch on, we'll touch on um, this sort of regulatory framework in a bit. I wanted to lead into it uh, by the time you guys were at an auction um, trying to buy a pig. Uh, can you tell us what happened there? Ooh, that was a, that was a long day. It was a day. We, uh, so we, right at the beginning, we were like, we need to get a, a biopsy from an animal to start this whole process of producing a proof of concept. A biopsy from a pig can be... Like it's, it's less than the size of an almond, mm. right? So it's, it's a harmless thing for this pig and these pigs that were gonna be at the yep. Camden sale yard are there for sale for slaughter. And we had this beautiful idea where we'd save one, we'd go out there, we'd, we'd be like, you know what, buddy, today's your day. And we'd take him out. We had lined up a basically a sanctuary farm that were happy to house him as a pet. They already had a pet pig with a young family. They were ready to go, it was fantastic. And 
But uh, when we got to the sale yard, we were, ju- we, were, we were there, we were ready to buy it. We had gone to Kmart, we had bought this dog carrier to put our little piglet in. And we get an email from one of the vets that was going, oh, the, oh, actually it was the vet that was going to do the biopsy saying, look, I've spoken to the P- Department of Primary Industries and they've clarified that taking a biopsy from a live animal, unless the outcome is absolutely known and standard, is illegal. And I could go to jail, you could go to jail, we can all go to jail and everyone is gonna rot in jail forever. And it was like, we're standing there in this auction going, what do we do now? Basically, yeah, so what they're saying is that any time that you take any any sample from an animal- or any and procedure on an animal. So yeah, any surgery yeah. you do on an animal, you have to know why and what the yeah. outcome is. They, they basically deem anything is, is research. And you understand why this exists, right? Because then anyone could just, you know, kind of go out there mad scientists and start operating on animals, which is a terrible, terrible outcome. But for us, this was, you know, this was a moment of kind of absurdity because here we were trying to save this animal, mm. right? Take it to where it's going to live a much better life and then contribute towards creating a technology that was going to save every other single one of those pigs for the rest of time. Mm. But we were, it was totally illegal. But what we were told is that we could, you know, once an animal dies, essentially, once an animal is slaughtered, you can do anything. And so there was this kind of like, backwards approach to, to, to laws there and which is really unfortunate. We I mean we count ourselves lucky in so much that we managed to hunt down someone who was willing to support research who owned an abattoir and went out there and there was yeah, I mean there was a there was a pig that was already going to be butchered and used for meat and so we just we basically jumped in after the fact and took our sample then. Um, but it seemed it felt backwards. Can you describe the existing regulatory framework uh, in simple terms and, and why it is so backward? So when it comes to that particular regulation about taking doing any procedure on an animal without knowing the outcome, honestly it's not backwards. It's a really I'm comforted as an Australian citizen, as a you know, resident of New South Wales, to know that we have these protections in place for animals. We are such an extreme edge case. Like there is, these laws were not put in place for us. These laws were put in place to stop unfair and unreasonable testing mm-hmm. of surgeries and products on animals. Totally. And they are fulfilling that purpose. We just happen to be the craziest edge case the legislators could have possibly <laughs> dreamed up. Yeah. When it comes to food regulations in Australia, the regulators have been really open and very, very eager to engage in a dialogue. Is For them, they have one job, and that is don't mess up. That is to protect the Australian public and protect the strong reputation of Australia's safe and reliable uh, food system. And so they want to get involved in this conversation and talk to us and understand how we're thinking about this, understand how we're planning to manage risks and make sure we produce a product which is not just safe, but safer than what we already consume. And so they have been very receptive, but they do work slowly. They are not the type of regulator to rush things to market, to try to be first. The Australian regulator especially is defending a biosecurity and food safety system which has been built up over centuries. Mm. And they are not ready to take a risk on that for a couple of crazy guys who think now's the time to bring cultured meat to market here. International regulators are more open and Australia is actively engaging with that so that they can start to learn about how these products are gonna be regulated. But when you flip the story and think about what's possible for Australia and in terms of what incentives are there, it's, it's massive. Like we are on the doorstep of Asia and we have 
70% of our red meat production is going as exports. And so we have an opportunity right now at the nexus of this next kind of agricultural revolution to be the country that supports that innovation and that becomes mm. a huge, massive exporter of this product. In, in Western Sydney, they're building a new 24-7 airport that's going to have a production and manufacturing corridor. That means you get eased uh, customs and you can get products manufactured, high-tech manufacturing, straight on the plane into an Asian country within the space of, you know, seven or eight hours, which means it could be quicker than potentially their own production systems there on the ground in that country. And so we have this really rich, massive, massive opportunity to increase the Australian GDP around this brand new technology, create really large, high-tech manufacturing jobs as well, including the R&D and the science. And that applies to many, many other things, including like tissue engineering in the medical field in terms of organoids, it's it's absolutely nuts and so when we think about regulation we think well what is it that supporting this thing coming to market here and supporting the sale mm. of this product would do for the Australian economy for jobs and for the innovation that we kind of pride ourselves on here in Australia in terms of science mm. I love it so much thank you both for your time that was quite remarkable All right. um, thank you Mason that was great <laughs> now it's time to talk to Samantha Wong the investor who's backed their journey why is cultured meat important for our future? Well, I think that, you know, the, the obvious um, point to make is just around the resource intensity of uh, traditional animal farming, um, growing meat on the animal, on land, feeding it food that also needs to be grown on land, um, and then combined with the expected population growth over the next 20, 30 years, um, there's an, an extra 1.5 billion people to be born in the next 30 years. Um, we also have a rapidly growing middle class in in places like China. Um, and what we know about you know increasing affluence is that people want to eat more meat more often. And also we have an aging population. Um, so we're all going to live longer, uh, hopefully and more, more healthily as well. And overall, that just means like a lot more people who need to eat um, or want to eat meat. And we already use two thirds of the world, um, world's land to cultivate livestock. So where cultured meat actually, I think, plays a role. And I guess maybe I feel differently to some people in that I, I do think the existing paradigm of, of, of growing animals to eat them will, will still exist, you know, 30, 40, 50 years from now. But I think it'll be a really premium, high-end product. Everything will be sort of organic and hand-reared and providence will be really important. You'll you'll know everything there is to know about, about that animal and how it lived and died. Um, and then I think plant-based meat will be also an important part of the paradigm um, but there will be limitations, um, I believe, uh, achieving the sort of texture and mouthfeel um, that you get with animal meat uh, with using plant proteins. The challenge right now is not how do we make this. Um, modern medicine has been tissue culturing for decades now. These are technologies um, that many scientists are very comfortable with. It's more that we've only ever done it on a very small scale. No one has ever had to grow tons of, of uh, uh, heart tissue before. It's a scale-up question um, and one that um, I think uh, the world really needs to answer now and, and that's why you're seeing lots of investment in the space and lots of interest. I remember when I first sort of joined Blackbird, uh, you wrote a blog on Rivers of Inquiry and I was fascinated by it and I'm fascinated how you, you were led to this area of the world. Can you describe the sort of first moment that um, sparked your interest and how that led you to Val? 
Yeah, so it was a pretty long journey from the Spark to, to Val. Um, just to explain that, the Rivers of Inquiry is um, a kind of a, a phrase we use internally to describe how we find new investment themes. And so the idea is something starts as a trickle of interest and um, over time, it could, you know, some of these trickles of interest build momentum and become a, a full investment theme. Um, so in about 2016, 2017, I think I read an article, maybe it was Fast Company or something like that, about um, a company called Modern Meadow that was um, using synthetic biology and, and tissue engineering to make leather for luxury brands to make handbags and shoes and, some, and, and things like this. And, and I was just kind of captivated by that idea, but it just sort of struck me that if you could do that, if you could literally make tissue in, you know, bioreactors instead of killing animals, like why wouldn't you do it for something, I guess, with more impact and meaning than, than another handbag? And, and then that just sort of led me to kind of look at the food space. And I did a, a bunch of things all around the same time. I went to a conference uh, called New Harvest, sort of one of the more uh, leading conferences around the new science um, that's emerging in in the clean meat area. And I met a couple of companies. I, I tried to meet even researchers who may want to start companies. Uh, I met Huros, um, Nick from Huros, who at the time was working on uh, growth factors for cell culturing, but not specifically for clean meat. Um, it was applicable to sort of um, human regenerative med- medicine as well, but, but also um, could apply to um, clean meat. And then I think I met George through the Grow Lab Accelerator that Cicada was running at the time. And I met Tim separately because he started a clean meat meetup and I wanted to get involved with that. I mean, I was trying to put myself in the epicenter of um, a very nascent uh, clean meat community in, mm. in Australia. Um, but basically um, met George and Tim George through, was like through a, that. He was an ex-chef, right? And then you also have Tim who was in human-centered design these are founders who really aren't scientists what did they do to sort of gain your trust yeah i mean it's true they're not really central casting for for synthetic biology um startups at all um i think i just really watched them execute you know um they were very open and and shared early and often about what they were thinking about doing just connected them with as many people as i could to help them validate their idea and they just took twenty thousand dollars of their own money and hustled their way to um, you know, a biopsy and um, producing meat within a kind of a few months, which was just staggering, right? It would be staggering even if they weren't scientists, to be honest. Like that would have been good progress um, at an international level um, for other clean meat companies. But um, the fact that they did it without being sort of experts in the area just seemed to me to suggest that they were just learn it alls and whatever the challenge was that they encountered they would just find a pass through. Was there anything in their pitch that you really liked or anything um, that they approached differently aside from just being like the ultimate scrappy founders? Yeah, so I think that it was just the weirdness of what they were uh, <laughs> talking about. The thing was no one was sort of approaching it, I guess, from a first principles basis and, and asking, hey, if we can make any cells or any meat, why do we want to restrict ourselves to the four or five species that we've managed to industrialize, you know, being chicken, cows, sheep, pig, and, and, and fish to some degree. And then ultimately like the ambitiousness of that, right? It's so fascinating that they're almost recreating a new category of food. How do you even think about testing their products 
um, when the time comes? How do you ensure that the quality is high enough so that people end up really loving the product? Well, I mean, that's kind of part of the bet that we're taking. I mean, right now I can't even test the product. It's illegal in Australia. Our laws don't support that. And, and that's something we kind of need to address as well um, if we want to stay ahead um, in this you know, area of investment. But I think one of the things um, that was encouraging or a positive signal was that they they wanted to engage really early with chefs and in particular sort of celebrity chefs and, you know, have, have started kind of trying to open dialogues with a bunch of people there. That's, you know, one thing, but they do have this ability to sort of magnetically draw people to their cause as well. I guess I felt um, given they'd, you know, had a reasonable amount of success in bringing a bunch of other great investors as well as um, uh, people, talent, staff to their, to their business, that they would be able to crack that. It'll take some iterating, it'll take some work, but at least that they were thinking about thinking thinking about it early from sort of the pre-seed stage. Whereas a lot of clean meat companies are just really focused on the science and getting a product sort of out there and then worrying about taste later. But I don't think I don't think I think you need to do them in parallel. If it is illegal, how did you sort of get over that hurdle from an investment point of view? To like that, that's a that's a big hurdle to jump. Yeah, well, I mean, I sort of also knew that we had a few years. This is not a product that was going to kind of you know come to market within eighteen months. Um, and I guess I had the example of Zooks uh, from uh, from the first fund where when Blackbird invested in twenty fourteen. Um, autonomous vehicles were super, super illegal. Um, and, uh, but you could see that there was huge momentum around it and that it was inevitable that somewhere in the world, um, regulations were going to permit this new modality to come to market. And Zooks also needed a lot of time to bring its product to market. So it's just a bet that the synchronicity will happen. Though by no means the first clean meat company, um, there are you know, a bunch who've started before them and who have also started on the lobbying work. Um, and again, we, it's such a big market. We just need to you know, find one um, country that uh, creates a supportive regulatory environment on a time scale where we can produce enough volume to actually commercially sell to be successful. It looks right now like um, there are a bunch of jurisdictions around the world who are mobilising to create the frameworks for these products to come to market. Australia's not one of them yet, but um, I'm hopeful that we'll get there. How do you feel about the potential backlash with cultured meat, clean meat, plant-based meat on the farming industry? I think it's a really good question. Um, and we're already sort of hearing a little bit of that um, around the place. And I think it's, you know, to some degree, it's like a, it's a valid thing to bring up. I think we need to remember here is that the market is growing well in excess of what farmers can provide for. I don't think at maturity, sort of when, when both plant and cell-based meats kind of um, hit the market, that there isn't going to be a place for farmed meat. I think there absolutely will be, but I think it'll be a really premium high-end product. And I think we'll see the worst of factory farming fall away because quality-wise, it won't be able to compete with plant and cell-based meat. Price-wise, it probably won't be able to compete with 
at least plant-based meat in the beginning, uh, those farmers can actually move up market, maybe reduce the volume of, of meat that they're producing, but increasing the quality and attaching more value to providence and um, encouraging consumers to do the same and, and effectively creating brands around their farms. And then I think that middle chunk of the market will largely be taken by, by plant-based meat um, and cell-based meats. And I think also we need to remember that, you know, plant-based meat has, takes a plant input. And so um, there are opportunities in Australia for us to switch from animal-based farming to um, crop-based farming for those industries and to the high-value processing of plant proteins um, and manufacturing. And I think it makes sense for us to do that because, we have a brand in Australia that is, is highly desired overseas for, you know, clean, high-quality, nutritious um, food. Uh, we can attach, a pre- you know, that brand premium to the products that, that we manufacture here and export from here. So I'd like to see us kind of explore that rather than um, dismissing out of hand um, the, the whole industry for fear that, you know, it, some jobs will be lost when um, many more jobs could be created and the existing jobs kept as well. How do you think that we can work together to get the best outcome that you sort of described, especially right now when it's still so early on? Yeah, well, I think, um, you know, engaging with government is going to be a big part of it and engaging with industry groups and, you know, working with the numbers, you know, um, sitting down and and modelling this stuff out. Um, I I think what what is counterintuitive and what people don't don't really realise is that um, meat can literally not get any cheaper. For the last decade, the cost per pound wholesale of meat has been rising, which indicates that you cannot drive any more efficiencies. It has just gotten as cheap as it can as a product, despite the best efforts of um, industrial agriculture. And so you just, we, we just need that, that pressure, you know, of, of a growing population is not going to subside. We just need more alternatives. And I think that could, you know, eventually mean that um, farmers could command higher prices and have have better healthier margins which would be a positive thing for them as well but I think we need to have an open dialogue and you know it would be great to engage with government engage with industry groups and work with the numbers and work work at how this can happen because um, you, you know what would be really tragic is um, we just decide at this very early point in the I guess evolution of this industry to not participate and ultimately consumers want these products. Um, you can see that from, you know, any sort of retail data around this category and we're either going to be importers of it or exporters of it. And I would rather us be exporters personally. And I think we should all care about that at a national level. Thank you so much for your time, Sam. My pleasure. Thanks cool. for bringing the Val guys on. If you have any questions or feedback, we'd love for you to send us an email, wildhearts at blackbird.vc. I hope you'll subscribe. And if you liked the podcast, we'd be super grateful if you left us a review. Also, check out valfood.com to see if they have any job openings. I'll leave it in the show notes. And finally, if you haven't already, make sure you sign up to Giants Weekly, our new online event series. Join us every Tuesday at a.m. Australian Eastern Standard Time for 30-minute Q&As from top tech leaders. Thank you so much for joining me, and I'll see you next time.